I'm Charlotte Hawkins and welcome to Last, Past and Blast. Each week we'll delve into the musical lives and memories of a different guest and each guest will choose three pieces of music. Their last, the latest piece of classical music they've been listening to, their past, a significant piece of classical music from their life and a blast. That's their wild card. So keep an ear out for guilty pleasures with that one. Together we'll explore the way music has shaped their lives and what it means to them. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with broadcaster, journalist, writer and television presenter and my Good Morning Britain colleague, Piers Morgan. We spoke about just what it's like being Piers Morgan, how he played the piano for Will Smith and, of course, there may be a mention or two of his new book, Wake Up. Here's the episode. Piers, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, although I do suspect I'll be making up for this for some time to come, won't I? (laughs) Of course. It's a bit like that scene in The Godfather, you know, when The Undertaker, (laughs) you know, he he asks The Godfather for a favour and then The Godfather asks for it back. It just takes a few years. Well, I have to say, you're the only interviewee who has warned me several times before the interview has happened about what the consequences might Mm. be. Well, we know so much about each other. I just said to you, (laughs) if you want to start a nuclear war, you would be Kim Jong-un and I would be President Trump. (laughs) It's not going to end well Which is for you. a glorious way. Yeah, you'd be vaporised in five off, seconds. So just behave yourself. I mean, I can't wait for this. Well, we will talk about music at some point during this podcast, don't worry. But I wanted to talk to you a bit about you, a bit about what it's like being Piers Morgan, because one of the most common questions I get asked on a regular basis is, what is it like working with Piers Morgan? So I wanted to ask you, what on earth is it like actually being Piers Morgan? <laughs> it's good fun. Mainly because I never get asked what it's like working with you. <laughs> no, I do. I do, actually. You're, you're actually surprisingly popular. Uh, I always put them right, oh, obviously. Uh, no, it's fun being me. I Don't mean, sound so surprised. The thing is, obviously, I'm aware that my public image is not exactly Mother Teresa, but I'd rather it wasn't. I'd rather be someone that thinks, you know, that has opinions, that winds people up. I think you can testify that I do that rather well. That I gets everybody agree. going in the morning. You know, my new book's called Wake Up for a Reason. I like to wake people up. I like to get everyone thinking, get everyone having opinions. But, of course, if you do that, everyone who doesn't agree with your opinions is probably not going to like you. So you are, by definition, you become this polarising figure. So I do it deliberately and I enjoy it. Do you get surprised by what people say to you on the street. I mean, I get times where people say, just even shout to me in the supermarket saying, give him a slap from me, you know, and that's only from time to time. So what well, kind that of would be do you That get would be violence in the workplace and you would be frog marched out of the building. <laughs> no, I only ever get a good response. I know it sounds probably baffling to people, but I only ever get a good response in the street. I wander up and down my high street most days and people just come up, they want to laugh, they want a selfie. They normally want to have some opinion about something that they either agree with me or don't agree with me. But I think people who watch, particularly if they watch Good Morning Britain a lot, they can see that I'm, you know, tongue in cheek with a lot of this stuff, just trying to get everybody going about, you know, vegan sausage rolls or the evils of wearing a papoose, whatever it may be. I like to just stir things up and get people thinking. What is it like being part of the presenting lineup for Britain's most talked about breakfast show? What you mean, Good Morgan Britain? Yeah, Good Morning Britain. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's an easy mistake it. to good make. Good Morgan Britain, as you'd like it's, it to be um, called. <laughs> I think we're a very good team. I think we all uh, we all have a healthy respect for each other, but we also love winding each other up, and that's the perfect kind of workplace. Any colleague in particular that you want to thank for, you know, always being there for you and yeah, Susanna, uh, laughing at your jokes Susanna. at all the right place. <laughs> and then maybe Ben, he's good. Um, Laura, the weather expert, she's fantastic. Uh, Ranveer, who's in Strictly, she's always there for me. Um, Richard no, Arnold, Richard Arnold, as well. <laughs> always there for me. Yeah, yeah. It's just the you got to watch the oh, Doctor Hillary, you got to watch course, the ruthless yeah. ones. And Doctor Hillary, always, there, always there. Yeah, it's just the ruthless blondes that want to run all over you to get up the greasy pole, so to speak. Um, We'll move on from that one, shall we? It has been quite a few months, hasn't it? Because, you know, we've all gone through a weird time, difficult circumstances, up and down the country. People have faced a really strange change to their lives in whatever form it's been. How do you think it has changed you? I know that you've, you know, you've felt, 
quite intensely the pressure of the job mm. at this time, haven't you? Because you do feel a responsibility, don't you, as a as a journalist there at well, the we forefront all, we all of do. bringing people this news? Yeah, we all do. And also, obviously, we had a very personal reason at Good Morning Britain for taking this pandemic incredibly seriously. One of our own colleagues, Kate Garraway, you know, a poor husband, Derek, remains critically ill in a coma. And that I know that all of us on the show felt that very personally. We've had Absolutely. to live her horrifying story. And there are so many like Kate, sadly, who've had to uh, battle with this virus through loved ones who have it. And some come through it and some sadly don't. And it's it's been an incredibly painful period, I think, for so many people, both with public health and the virus itself, and also with all the economic ramifications of lockdown and people losing their jobs. And I think, no, we're on every morning and our job is to report the news, to inform people about what's going on, but also to be empathetic to people for what they're going through, whether they were health and care workers, seeing colleagues lose their lives or people, you know, I had three or four people I knew well who lost parents to COVID. And that really brought this home to me that when we were interviewing people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and pushing him on policies, these were policies that were directly impacting the lives of people I knew. And that's why I got very passionate about it. And we all did. But I think that, you know, I, I saw Good Morning Britain as having a pivotal role in how this was reported to the public because we were able to hold these ministers to account when they were making, I'm afraid to say, largely very bad decisions. Although the tough thing is obviously not able to hold them to account in the way we'd like to at the moment, are we, because of the government boycott, which I know you find hugely frustrating. I just think it's a complete uh, insult to our viewers who are who are the people that help pay their wages. I mean, who, who do they think they are, this government? The idea of 156 days, whatever it is, I mean, the idea of it being 170-odd days, whatever it is now, that they boycotted Good Morning Britain. I just think is a complete dereliction of their democratic duty. Their salaries are paid by us, the taxpayer. Who are they to boycott programmes? Not just us, but Channel 4 News, Newsnight, anywhere that might hold them properly accountable, they boycott. And we also saw the government boycotting MPs, refusing to even let them get involved in holding them to account. So the whole thing's been a total farce. But of course, there's a very good reason they don't want to come on Good Morning Britain. It didn't end well most times when they did. No, but you have talked about the fact that you do admit sometimes maybe you went too far with politicians because of the strength of feeling that you had about what was going I on. I don't think we went too far, no. No, you might have done. You said that. I think you did a few times. But you said you're that. You're known as I Miss Nasty not. in the business. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't, no, I don't think I went too far. I think I got very passionate and angry. But when I look back on it... Giving them enough chance to answer questions? I think if the reason I would always interrupt is one of two reasons. Either they're waffling, trying to buy time, or the answer they've given is complete nonsense. And as an interviewer, I believe you have an absolute duty, especially in a massive crisis like this, that if a politician is either trying to buy time because they don't have the answer, or they're giving you a completely erroneous answer, your job is to jump in there and not just give them free airtime to spew their nonsense. And I make no apology for that whatsoever. If people were upset by it, imagine being on the front line in a hospital through that period. That was a tough job, not being a politician, making decisions that's making their lives more difficult. You did talk at one point, though, about wanting to maybe change slightly. I mean, you talked about Marcus Rashford, about Captain Sir Tom Moore, mm. about the way they dealt with things, about how they're inclusive, they maybe deal with things in a, in a calmer way, which I think you, you agreed was a good way for them. Well, I was to really equating it not so much to going after politicians about their appalling decision making. That's one thing. I was really equating it to the general noise that goes on on social media, which has got completely hysterical, completely out of control. I never see anybody change their mind. It's very tribal. Uh, people on both sides getting ever more entrenched into their positions, not thinking for themselves, but just what does my tribe think of this particular issue? And then blindly following it and hysterically shouting at each other and abusing each other. And in that regard, I definitely think I've played a, an unfortunate a contributory role in that. But the one thing I've learned over time is whether it's you know, arguing with pro-gun people in America or Arsenal fans about Arsene Wenger or over the England cricketer Kevin Peterson, whether they should be back in the England team, whatever it may be, 
the louder I've shouted at people about it and the more self-righteous I've been about my position, the less successful I've been in those campaigns. And, you know, Kevin Peterson never got back in the England team. Arsene Wenger didn't leave for nearly nine years after I started that campaign. Uh, America's buying yeah. ever more. I got booted out of Strictly because, you know, you were shouting about well, how I, you they got booted out of Strictly the moment I supported a, you. Yeah, I told you. There's a common theme here. You're right. No, but I do think there's a genuine thing for all of us. Yeah, I mean, not you, because you're obviously very nice. But uh, everyone who gets involved in the rough and tumble of social media could take a look at Marcus Rashford and Captain Tom and see two people who actually achieved a phenomenal amount by being civil and being polite and respectful, even to people they vehemently don't agree with. And I think that was the point I was making. Yeah. Social media has become just this angry, hysterical, tribal noise. And actually, that's not how two of the biggest achievements of the year, getting millions of kids their school meals or raising 37, 8 million pounds for the NHS. That's not how that was achieved. How do you cope with the abuse that you get on social media? Because, you know, if I got even a fraction of the comments that people direct your way, I just can't imagine. Do you just not look at it? Does it just like water off a duck's back? Yeah, I mean, look, when how you've you got... That? Or does it not bother you? Or is that, does that sort of drive you on? It's all about the numbers. I mean, when you've got 7.6 million <laughs> followers, you're going to get a lot of loons. Um, you wouldn't know because you haven't got 7.6 million followers. Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, Instagram's a much nicer place, isn't it? I've got 1.3 million followers there and, it, and I hardly get any abuse. Twitter, I've got a huge amount of followers and that can be very good and it can help with things like getting a debate going on GMB and getting ratings going and fueling my columns for the Daily Mail and so on. But it can also obviously lead to lots of people saying very unpleasant things. I've got a very thick skin as I think you would agree, having worked with me for a long time, very little actually gets to me. And that may be years and years of running a daily tabloid newspaper where every day was a bit of a scrap at a war. And I think it's similar on, on Twitter. Also, if you, don't, if you don't enjoy it, don't be on it. No one's forcing you. No one's holding a gun to people's heads saying, you must tweet or read tweets about yourself. So yes, we get idiots. Yes, they're foul mouth. Yes, they can be totally obnoxious. But one of my favourite things is going through the more abusive ones and um, correcting their spelling. That really goes down very, very badly with the trolls. <laughs> Which I'm sure they take very well, yeah. <laughs> You've got four children and, you know, your three boys are, are adults now. Elise, I think, is eight, isn't she? What, what do you think about the world that they're growing up in? Because, of course, when it comes to social media, you know, things are kind of escalating on that aspect. When we look at what's happening with the pandemic, what is going to be out there for job opportunities, for, you know, how the situation is with the universities at the moment. It, it's like a horribly uncertain time for young it people, is, isn't it? It is, but I keep reminding them it's not as bad as World War Two, which my grandmother was in her late teens through World War Two, And that was six years and it caused unbelievable devastation and loss of life and economic mayhem, and we recovered from that. So I keep spreading a message to all my kids, we will come through this. We always have. We always will. It's going to be a rough few years. not going to be easy, but then life isn't easy. I've said this for a long time, life is not easy. Life's tough. You know, that Rocky Balboa quote about it's not how often you hit, it's about how many times you get hit in life and get up again and keep going. That's the trick of life. And it's uh, one of the themes of the book is that, you know, I have a whole ongoing issue, frankly, with the way that we deal with a lot of the mental health debate and how we deal with kids who've got general anxiety about life. We teach them so many things at school, but who's actually teaching them about mental resilience, mental strength? And when were those bad things to teach kids? When, when was being strong a problem? You know, so I think that um, there's a lot that we can tweak and change with this ongoing debate. we The more we've talked about more mental health, the more anxiety and depression appears to be occurring. That can't be right. What's going on? And I think we need to, to get into the schools and we need to help kids deal with the problems of modern life. And in particular with social media and trolls and all the kind of things which, which I'm told by my kids certainly cause a lot of the problems. Mm. And what do your kids say to you about about you and how you are, do they do they say, oh, dad, I can't believe what you said today? What's it like for them having Piers Morgan as a dad? I think they would say that I've always encouraged them to speak their minds. 
and we have ferocious arguments over dinner when we all get together. I, I like that. I encourage them to do that. If they hear or see me do something on Twitter or GMB or a column that they don't like, they'll all message me and say, Dad, why are you saying that? You know, and they'll really challenge me. That's the kind of kids I want to bring up. Minds of their own, strength of character, not afraid to have their own opinion. But ultimately, very family-oriented people, they want, they would always be supportive of me. And I've always said to them, let's have our battles behind closed doors. As a family, you've got to show loyalty to the outside world. It's a bit sort of mafioso like that. <laughs> Did you always want to be a journalist? Because, you know, I know you worked in, in newspapers for many years. You were what, the youngest editor of a British newspaper in, in 50 years when you became the editor of, of News of the World. Was it something that you always wanted to do from a yeah, young age? from the age of five or six. I used to read the Daily Mail. My parents got the Daily Mail. I used to read it from cover to cover at the age of six, talking about stories and headlines. But that's weird. Who does that? Um, but that I, was always, I was always very single track mind. I wanted, just want to be a journalist. And I wanted to be on a local paper, did all the proper training, got on local newspapers in South London, then I wanted to get onto a national paper, did loads of shifts of various papers, got rejected by a few papers that I then went on to become the editor of. It's quite amusing. Uh, but that taught me again, never take rejection personally, just keep going. You know, I've got rejection slips yeah. from the News of the World, from the Mail on Sunday. Uh, all these papers I ended up working for at a high level. So I think the message of my career path is, if you, you just have, if you've got a career in mind, you've got to have a passion for it. And if you've got a passion for it, do whatever it takes to get to where you want to get to. I don't mind rejection. Rejection's a good thing. You learn from rejection. Yeah. Well, I find it really interesting with you when you were saying about, you know, getting hit and getting back up again, because, you know, when you look at what happens with the mirror and the, the fake Iraq photographs, CNN, you mm. know, things haven't always gone your way. And I was there at your 50th birthday party when your brother gave a speech and he talked then about the fact that, you know, you've got this amazing ability when, when sort of things knock you down, that actually you just use it to your advantage, dust yourself off and get back up again and, and go on to sort of do bigger and and better, which I think for a lot of people, they'd have a situation that happened that they would look at and think, oh, you know, this is horrendous. This is life shattering. What on earth am I going to do with this? What gives you that ability, do you think? Well, I don't understand what option you've got. What are you going to do? Is wallow? Feel sorry for yourself the rest of your life? Drown in self-pity? You know, I don't understand people that, that do that. It, life's tough. Like I said, you're going to get a load of knocks. You're going to lose loved ones. You're going to lose jobs. You're going to lose stuff you care about. Um, and it's how you deal with those things. My grandmother was always very good at putting that in my head, and my mum as well. They've both suffered huge amounts of difficult things in their lives. And when my grandmother was alive, she'd always say to me, you know, it's how you get on with life is the key thing. That's, how, that's what will determine the quality of your life. If you let bad things drag you down, well, that's, your life's going to be miserable. However mm. bad things are, life goes on. And either you go on with it positively or what's the point? So to me, it's always been a natural thing. You know, when I've lost the mirror job, for example, I thought, great, I can write a book, which I've been trying to do for ages. The Insider, my uh, diaries, which were number one for 10 weeks. So out of one cloud came a silver lining. I couldn't do the book when I was still editor. So I always felt that you've got to try and out of every apparent negative, when everybody else is like, ah, ha, ha, look at him, prove them wrong. Use all that negative energy from people and use it to propel yourself to something even more irritatingly successful. Drives them nuts. <laughs> what, and what's been the thing when you look back, though, that has hit you the hardest? Has, has there been things that you've just thought, I can't, I can't see a way through this? No. Honestly, no. I mean, I was ready to leave the mirror. I'd done nearly 10 years. I wanted to write the book. That was really successful. On the back of the book, I did America's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, One Celebrity Apprentice with a certain Donald J. Trump as the host, got a dream <laughs> job at CNN, did over a 1,000 shows on American primetime TV at CNN, interviewed everybody I could possibly have wanted to interview. And other people looked at those things like me leaving the mirror, leaving CNN, and were far more upset about it than I was. I, was, I wanted to come home from CNN. I just wanted to come home. Never thought I'd do breakfast TV. And ended up loving it. So I just felt yeah, that... apart from the early mornings. Yeah, the early mornings are a pain. But actually, um, and the, obviously the people I work with are a little awkward. But, um, yeah. no, but in, terms of, uh, in terms of 
I've often found other people seem to be far more exercised about stuff that's happened to me than I am. You know, short of people I care about dying, everything in life's, you know, just what it is. You just have to crack on. You mentioned your mum before. Now, every time I met her, she she's such a wonderful lady. I think she seems like a real tower of strength. You're just saying that because she's such a big fan of yours. Life. She, you know that. I she do is. love the she fact that she always texts me in the middle of the show. Says, Stop you, being so mean. She Charlotte. sends you messages, <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant. No, I think she's absolutely phenomenal. She's been a big part in sort of making you the person that you are. I know you've got that story about. Did she got a picture with a hippopotamus on it or something? It's a hippopotamus flying with a flock of seagulls, she, and the headline is "Ambition yeah. Knows No Bounds." And I still have it on my <laughs> desk now because that's a perfect thing for life. If you think about it, everyone who's been mega successful, most of them began with nothing. Honestly, look at most big pop stars or TV stars or uh, even big politicians, world leaders. They've all come from very little. Showing that anyone can achieve anything if they put their mind to it. You just have to have the drive, determination. I think you have to have a, a good work rate in you. You can't teach people to work hard. But I think overall, my message to people is always find something you love doing. And it's, it's not work. I haven't felt like I've done a day's work in 30 years. Well, let's talk about your your childhood. And I mean, did music play a part when you were growing up? What kind of music would your, your parents play? Yeah, my, my dad was a drummer in a jazz band uh, for a while. So he loved jazz. Really? Yeah, he loved jazz. He loved he loved the Rat Pack, Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin. He loved all that kind of stuff, swing jazz. And he actually played drums in a jazz band. So that was cool. We had a lot of music in the family there. Yeah, I think we've always loved music. I mean, I wouldn't claim that I'm the world's greatest classical music expert, or that I listen to it a lot. Really? That's not what you tell no, me. No, but oddly, oddly, in, as I've got older, I have become more interested in it. And in fact, when I'm in LA in particular, my garden under the palm trees and the sun's out and I've got the sonos blaring, I actually now, rather than the normal stuff, I'm quite happy to have a couple of hours of Chopin or something like that. And I find that wonderful to read to. I love classical music as background to reading. So I've actually become much more interested and engaged in classical music in the last like three, four years. Because I see you and a lot of the time you're you're on your phone, you're constantly looking out for things, you're, mm. you know, you're on the go the whole time. So do you find it hard to switch off? Is well, that, I don't is have that much time to switch off. You'd have to put something like music Yeah, in. that's why I like being in Los Angeles when I'm there. I've got a house there. I go there for three, three and a half months of a year. When I'm there, everything in Britain stops at about 11 a.m. LA time. That's when I get to relax because I can do all my stuff and then sign off from everyone and just have a nice free time in the afternoon. That's when I get to read and listen to music and all that kind of thing. In London, I'm always too busy. There's always too much going on. You know, I do three columns a week. I do three days on Good Morning Britain. I've got my life story show. I do crime docs, which often involves flying around America. And so there's always a lot, lot going on. But when I'm actually in LA or on a holiday, that's when I read a lot of books and I like doing it now, oddly, to classical music, which I never used to. Very good. Well, a lot more people are listening to classical music now. And I think it's especially you, over the last it? few months, it's kind of, well, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that the Hawkins played factor. a part in all of that, encouraging people to, to listen to it more. But it's important. I mean, I like to think that more children should be involved in music, learning music, at least doing musical things when they're younger to give them a chance. You never know what amazing gifted musicians there might be out there that don't get the chance Completely agree. Music, reading, all those sort of basic staples of life 100 years ago. You know, it's very very easy not to spend time doing them, isn't it, in this fast-moving, high-tech age. But if you make the time, Mm. I think you'll be rewarded. Did you play music when you were at school? piano. That's quite good, actually. I could, play, I could still really? belt out a few Beatles songs on a drunken night in Dublin nightclubs. Well, I did hear that you played the piano with Will Smith, which you told I me. Did. Well, actually, no, I only saw a photo, so I haven't actually heard I played the proof Let of it you be. playing for him. I was in New York, and I played Let It Be to Will Smith as he lay on the top of the piano, and it was Barry Manilow's piano, which he'd left there from the day before. How about that for a bit of name-dropping? That's a multiple <laughs> that clang. That is a bit of name-dropping. That's quite a claim but He was to quite fame, surprised. Uh, he was quite surprised, Will Smith. Both by my piano playing and also my melodic singing. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't sing as well. That's no. <laughs> I feel for him in that case. He was obviously being polite. What were you like at school? I can imagine school sports day, you were fiercely competitive. Was that kind of how you ran things at school? Were you a similar person then to how you I was you are very now? good at cricket. So I was the school cricket captain. 
And I actually got into the England prep schools squad when I was 12, which was my highest sporting achievement. Then I went to the local comp and stopped playing cricket pretty much completely until I joined a local club. So that was a, that was sad. I never really fulfilled my potential as a cricketer, I, I think. But in terms of athletics, I was not very athletic. But what I lacked in technique and basic athleticism, I more than made up for with determination. And I would always try and win the non-finalist race. That was the race where everyone who hadn't gotten to a final would race together. So it was like the battle of the useless athletes. But I always won that. And that's the key thing I said to my kids. You're never going to be the best at everything. But if I catch you not trying, then we're going to have problems. Whatever you're doing, don't do it. If you're not going to give it everything you've got, don't do it. If you come last but you gave it everything, that's fine. But if you if you should win and you lose through lack of effort, that is criminal. And all my kids have been very good at sports, very sports. And that's the thing I've drummed in. I never want to see you not trying or fulfilling your potential. And you never find out what that potential is till you try loads of stuff. Then suddenly you find out you're the world's best snooker player. Who knows until you try. So try everything. Who knows? Yeah. I would like to thank certain members of your family for the contribution that they made towards this podcast as well. Because your sister Charlotte tells me a story that when you were at school, she has a memory of the one theatrical thing you did that uh, instead of nabbing a prime role in a Shakespeare production that we might have expected, you were actually given the role of prompt, mm. but unfortunately you didn't even get that right and you forgot <laughs> at the crucial moment to prompt the actor on their missing it line. Was, it was actually terrible. It was come to house prep school in East Sussex. Very nice prep school, about 110 kids. Really privileged, lovely education. I did both. I did private, then state, and enjoyed both very much, actually. But they had a wonderful old theatre built into the grounds. And it was like old stone going back hundreds of years. And I realised quickly that if I was the prompter, I had to be at every rehearsal and therefore wouldn't be at any of the lessons, which was just brilliant (laughs) Machiavellian scheming. And I did this. It was my midsummer night's dream. And I missed so many classes to be at every one of these rehearsals. was never required. All the kids knew their lines, didn't need prompting and rehearsals. And then got through the first two nights, absolutely no problem, no prompts. And the third night, I was just casually, you know, mucking around out the back, chatting up one of the stage managers. And then, uh, bang, there was a terrible (laughs) moment when someone froze and I wasn't there. And uh, I missed my one prompt. (laughs) That is an unfortunate incident. Mm. And uh, I've got another one here from your brother, Jeremy. Oh, God. Uh, He's told me a wonderful story, and I quote, When Piers was little, he used to sing quite a lot. A standout memory is his rendition of I'm a little teapot, complete with all the actions. Tip me up and pour me over, etc., for which I would take great delight in ridiculing him. Now, I just wanted to say, you know, is this something that you still do today? I believe the political political response is I have no recollection of any such event ever happening. (gasps) Oh! No. Is that true? Has he made that one he's up? Or are you up. Just yeah, he's an army colonel now? and we're very competitive oh. with trying to embarrass each other. As you know, you probably heard, remember his speech as he said at my 50th. No, he, um, what I remember about him was, given he's now a balding army colonel, is that he used to be obsessed with air guitar playing with his hair down to his shoulder in full denim suit, jacket and trousers to Genesis and Pink Floyd and bands and, and especially ACDC. Whole lot of Rosie by ACDC. Head, used to headbang and play air guitar and air drums. I mean, quite ridiculous. Little bandy oh, ad. And there was me. So I think that puts a little teapot into some perspective. The, I'm a little teapot no, rendition no. out of that one. If you think I'm one, doing that oh, for you on this, forget it. The check wasn't big enough. <laughs> um, the, mu- <laughs> the musicality that I hear from you on a daily basis is your constant humming. <laughs> because for those people who don't know, sitting next to you, I have never heard... So much humming coming from one person. I'm happy to be there. Is that what it is? But you sort of change your humming depending on, you know, sometimes you hum more ferociously. Mm. It's quite a, it's quite a thing. I've not weird, seen anyone do it like that. Tick, I agree. I don't know why, really. I find it, I find it comforting. Amid all the mayhem, I find humming quite comforting. Just to hum along in the mm. background. So let's look now at your musical choices yeah. because that is why we're here after all. So it's your last, your past and your blast. Your last 
That's the a latest piece of music or a piece of music that you've listened to recently that stood out for you. What would you? Pick I actually for that went one? for one. It wasn't strictly my last, but it was one of the one of the things I remember most from the last couple of years I listened to, which was and you were there and it was a remarkable event. It was the memorial service for Professor Stephen Hawking, and you know I know that. Uh, he died of motor neuron disease and, and your father very sadly did and one of my cousins very sadly yeah. did and we have a, a, a connection with the charity there. So it was a very moving uh, ceremony for, for all of us. And we went outside afterwards and it was a beautiful sunny day and we were all drinking champagne, which he loved, and Wagner was playing, which he loved, and all his friends and family were yeah. there who he loved. And it was a really joyous celebration of this remarkable man's life. And I'd had the great honour of doing my last ever television interview with him. I spent the uh, day up at Cambridge. Amazing. Fabulous. Uh, loved him. And um, and right at the end, they suddenly announced they were going to just do something special. And up came this giant screen. And there was Professor Stephen Hawking talking and saying these incredibly powerful, inspiring words about what we all need to do in life, go out and grab life. And the music to it was Vangelis had, had composed some special music to go with this rhetoric from Stephen Hawking. And we all just stood there. It was just the most powerful, moving, wonderful experience. And it's really stayed with me ever since. And I just thought, what a great way to go. Incredible music and the stirring words of Professor Stephen Hawking at his own memorial. And I think everyone there mm. will never forget it. It was. It was phenomenal and, and amazing, I think, that a piece of music, I know it had, you know, his, his voice on it as well, but could be so moving mm. and create so much atmosphere at the time was just with such a special and moment. And you know who was, who was sitting, standing a few yards away was Matt Hancock, the health secretary. Uh, oh, and I'd he? actually said to him, because I'd actually that. said yeah. to him, I suppose you're going to pretend you read A Brief History of Time. He said, I did when I was 13. I went, you read it? He said, yes. I think that may be one of the many claims Matt Hancock's made recently, which probably doesn't bear much scrutiny. Yeah. Well, we'll, but the Vangelis we'll music was, was beautiful. Certainly moved me to tears. Talking about tears, what, um, what makes you cry? When was the last time you cried? Uh, I think it was when Thierry Henry left Arsenal. Oh, I knew it would be football-related. <laughs> yeah, that was a very emotional day. Because I just interviewed him for GQ two months before, and he given me his own Premier League shirt and signed it to Piers, a true gooner, which is what Arsenal fans call ourselves, uh, from Thierry, a gooner for life. It turned out by life he meant two months. It cut me. Oh. Nearly killed me, that desperate moment. Well, Got wet most I of the day. How... <laughs> I know the strength of feeling that you have about football because mm. it's quite phenomenal when you come in one morning and we can all sense whether it's gone well or badly you know even like me for those of us who don't watch football there's a change like yeah. that isn't well, there depending a, whether it's gone if you follow well a team properly you know it's a religious experience really you're, it, you're part of it's just a game it's not a game that's where you're so wrong it's where women just don't get it luckily my wife celia understands it's a kind of spiritual religious thing it's a fervor and she, and you just she just lets me get on with it but if Arsenal go on a losing streak... Is that because it gives her a bit of peace and quiet? Well, sometimes she'll, she'll come in and I'll be all like monosyllabic and she'll say, oh God, have they lost again? And let's try to work out in her head how long I'm going to be miserable for. <laughs> are you are you the same at home? I know you sort of say that um, when we see you on screen mm. and you're you know arguing with people, shouting with people, you say that you're different when you get back. Is it because you sort of use up all the steam and then yeah. as soon as that's happened, you're, you're all chilled never, out? We never argue, silly me, about anything. Never. I don't even raise my voice at home. I don't, I don't, there's none of that. I'm very quiet. Like we just quietly get on with normal life because I've done all that at work. That's more of a persona But does thing. she not have times where she says, where she says, you know, you're wrong or I can't believe you said this or no, no, we'll, we'll debate, how could we'll you? We'll debate things, but we never actually get into rouse or anything because it's such a waste of energy. What's the point? I can't believe you say that, considering it's your favourite well, thing Well, Susanna can't believe it because she's my TV air. wife. And you've been my TV wife on occasion. And you can't understand it either of you because you just find me so utterly <laughs> no. intolerable and yes. irritating. But that's why I married Celia, not one of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very relieved that that is the case. And uh, let's move on to your past 
piece of yeah. music that you've chosen. So this is a piece of music from your past, something that has has meant a lot to you. I went for life. Ness and Dormer. And I went for not the Pavarotti version, which is absolutely stunning and brilliant. And one of the live performances he did of that is probably the greatest live performance of any classical music in the history of music. So inspired by him. But actually, it, for a number of reasons for me, it resonated uh, with Paul Potts, who you might remember was the winner of the first series of Britain's Got Talent. And that was my yes. first big primetime TV thing in Britain. So I had a huge amount invested after newspapers of having a big hit TV thing in, in this country. And we found this guy, and I'll never forget the audition. He came out in a shabby suit. He was sweating profusely. His teeth were all broken. He was balding. He was you know, quite chubby. And he wanted to sing Ness and Dora. And we all sort of fell about laughing, as we did with Susan Boyle. And the one thing we've learned on that show is never judge a book by its cover because Paul then began to sing. No. And he was a car phone warehouse salesman, sold uh, phones. And he began to sing and he was absolutely fantastic. Not at Pavarotti level, but for an amateur singer to sing in front of a big audience, not just of the thousands in the theatre, but you know, 10, 12 million people watching at home was an amazing thing. And I can remember that audition finishing and the place erupting. And then the, when it aired on TV, my phone going mad with, who's this guy? Paul Potts. And that was the personification, as with Susan Boyle, of what that show's really about, finding these rough diamonds who just wanted to be polished on the big stage. And when they got their chance, mm. took it. So whenever I hear that song, which I love anyway, and that piece of music, I always think of Paul Potts. And whenever I bump into him, he's having the time of his life. He's been very successful. He's sold millions of records. He's living the dream. And it's all, a film made out all of down it, yeah. to a bit of Ness and Dorma. It is. It's, and I always think for those people like him who, who don't have the musical training, mm -hmm. who can just sing an amazing piece of classical music in that way, because I watched it back recently, and it is just when he steps on stage mm -hmm. and, and you're all, you know, the judges are all giving each other little looks to go, oh, here we mm -hmm. go. And then he opens his mouth and that, and that beautiful sound comes yeah. out. is just, it's brilliant, which is it's the gift of programs like that, isn't it? To find those hidden gems, mm -hmm. those people who are just walking around doing everyday jobs and actually are, are hiding this amazing secret. It's what the shows are about. It's what makes them magical. Let's move on to your blast now. And this is, uh, this is a complete change of genre, isn't it? Tell <laughs> me about the piece of music that you love blasting well, I bet out you don't get this very often a classic FM. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, I, it's In the Club by 50 Cent. It's just the song that every time I hear it, it gets me going. And I quite often put it on when I'm having a shower and I get worked up for the day in the club. And it just as soon as I hear that music, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I don't know why. I interviewed him, right interviewed him a couple of times. We got on really well. He's a fantastically interesting character. He's made gazillions out of vitamin water. Never mind the music. He's a very smart business guy. But in the club, the moment I hear it, anywhere in the world, I'm ready to go. And you do quite often sing it on Good Morning Britain as well. I do, and I give it the full, you know, arms, the arm movement. That's proper in the club. It's not quite dancing, is it? But what's don't some think I'll take dance lessons from you. Have you got kicked off strictly <laughs> number 13? So. And, you, and you got so the boat you were dancing you... with fired. So let's yeah. not have the dancing when lecture. You can put, when you can put your money when your mouth is and you do strictly, then you can come back to me and comment about it. I think it. you've it's done enough as, damage I was say, it's not to as easy our, as our programme but... your performance. <laughs> Would you ever do strictly though? Uh, sure. Five million. It's a bit like I'm a celebrity. Five million quid. I'll Is do that, all these things. Yeah. I've only ever done one reality show, Celebrity Apprentice at USA, and I won it. I'm one for one. And the President of the United States picked me as a winner. I mean, it doesn't really get any bigger than that, does it? Yeah, he did. He did have a few choice words about you, though. I think he did call you ruthless, arrogant, evil, and obnoxious. Yeah. So, no no um, negative. Yeah, he, uh, he wasn't <laughs> sure that he actually liked you at the same time, by the sound no, of it. No, he saw a kindred spirit. <laughs> You think he had a grudging admirer of you? <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny. It's funny watching but, him become president, I must say, because I, I became good friends with him. And then next thing I know, he's yeah. the most powerful man in the world and the most divisive and polarising president probably of all time. So it's been quite a fascinating 
Right. But you've kind of changed your stance when it comes to him, haven't you? Because, you know, at one point you, I know you were, you wanted to sort of justify why he, you could see more of his side of things, I think, than, than well, other no, people. Well, no, I could, I, I just tried to explain to people him. why I thought he'd win, which he then did, when most people didn't think he would. I just kept saying to people, this is why I think you'll win. And I could see that in middle America, Florida, Texas, Alabama, uh, all those places, which I used to go to a lot doing my crime docs. I'd speak to people down there and I got a feel for what their concerns were and Trump tapped into them very cleverly. Plus, if you can take away his rhetoric, which is impossible, but if you can take away his rhetoric and his tweeting, what he's actually physically done as president by Republican president standards has been reasonably anodyne. I mean, he hasn't declared war anywhere, which is almost unprecedented for a Republican president. He's forged peace with traditional American enemies, North Korea, Russia, and so on. You know, until the pandemic, he was running a pretty good economy in America. So lots of things, you know, you could say he took out two of the world's worst terrorists. You know, al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, and Soleimani, the the head of the Iranian military. You, You know, you could tick all those boxes and say he was actually not doing that badly. But you can't divorce the rhetoric and you can't divorce the tweeting. And unfortunately, all his worst traits have been massively amplified by the pandemic and also by the, the mm. uh, shocking killing of George Floyd. And Trump's unfortunately been woefully ill-equipped, I think as a, in terms of his personality, with how to guide America through a time when they needed sensitivity and they needed empathy and they needed comforting. That's just not his thing. And he's made things immeasurably worse this year, which is why I've been very critical of him. We're heading for what is undoubtedly going to be a fascinating election time, isn't it? With, you know, nobody really knowing quite what's going to happen. It being hard to predict, hard to know even how long it might take to get a result, whether that result will be contested. It's it's going to be a compelling watch, isn't it, throughout the whole process? It is, and very unpredictable. Trump's base is rock solid. So it hasn't really moved in the four years. So the question then becomes, as people in low American politics will know, it's not about any more than about six or seven states, the battleground swing states. And in all those, it's pretty tight compared to the national numbers. So it's not about New York and California, which is where a lot of British people get their intel about America from. It's really about those battleground states, you know, Pennsylvania, Maine, all that kind of stuff. And there it's going to be close and ferocious. Also, it's complicated by the, the mail ballot system this year, where most Republican voters have said they'll turn up and vote, but most Democrat voters have said they're going to send in their votes by the mail. And Trump's already laying the ground for that being corrupt. And I think we're going to be in for one hell of a mess. I think it won't be resolved for days, if not weeks after the election. Yeah, it's going to be one of those ones where I think, yeah, we're all going to just be watching and waiting and seeing what on earth is going to happen, yeah. isn't it? So this week is a big week for you because your book is out, isn't it? What What do you want to tell us about what we can expect from your well, book? Well, it's called Wake Up. It's actually a diary of this extraordinary year, but uh, with two themes running through it. One the pandemic itself and how we reacted to it and how politicians reacted to it and the role that we played on Good Morning Britain and all that. But also the original idea for the book was to get into this woke culture, this cancel culture nonsense, which has led to liberals, of which I consider myself to be one, to become the most illiberal people in the world and to spend their entire time telling people how to think, act and behave. And it's got to stop. And this wokery, as it's called, uh, has got completely out of control. And it's led to people on the left wanting to cancel everything that they don't agree with and everyone they don't agree with. And this is really a clarion call to all of them to just stop it. A, it doesn't work. That's why we saw on the Brexit debate, Brexit prevailing over Ramona's who still can't deal with it. And I voted Remain myself, but they refused to accept the result. And that empowered Boris Johnson to then become prime minister. And in America, Hillary Clinton was the chosen woke candidate and got beaten by Donald Trump, who'd never you know, been in politics in his life. So it doesn't work being ultra woke. And Barack Obama has said this repeatedly, to stop this, this intransigent illiberalism because it's so self-harming. But now we see it spreading. We see it on Good Morning Britain every day. You know, universities refusing to have people uh, speak at their events if they're not you know, liberal speakers.
speakers. Well, why? Well, since when were universities not a place for different views? So to me, this woke epidemic has become incredibly dangerous because it basically is an assault on free speech. And I'll give the example of J.K. Rowling, who, whether you agree with her or not about the transgender issue, she's entitled to her opinion. And I don't believe she's remotely transphobic. She just has concerns about women's rights. She should be allowed to air them, and we should be allowed to debate it on all sides without the hashtag RIP JK Rowling trending on Twitter. That is disgusting and unacceptable. So I think we've got got to a stage where, again, the tribalism of social media has has made people very hysterical and very self-righteous and has led to people wanting anyone who doesn't agree with them. And the right do this as well, but I've written this book from the position of being a fellow liberal, saying to my liberal friends, stop, think about what you're doing. Be democratic, listen to people, have a debate. You know, I've got lots of opinions about loads of things, but I don't want to stop other people having opinions and I don't want to order them to give up things they like doing. I just want to have the right to say I don't share their view of it. That's what a democracy is about. So it's called Wake Up. And the idea really is that everyone needs to wake up. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that, you know, at a time when society is wanting to become more tolerant, more inclusive, actually people seem to be sort of more entrenched in the section that they're in and not necessarily willing to listen to other people's viewpoints. Like on Twitter, everybody on Twitter, if you get into the situation where you just follow like-minded people, mm. then you're never, you're never being challenged as to... The worst thing in the world is the echo the chambers on social media. Facebook, Twitter, whatever, where you only follow or listen to people or have friends who you agree with. I have friends, I've got family members I completely disagree with. That's good. That's how it should be. Who wants to all agree with everybody all the time? It's, I mean, I'll be out of a job. We mentioned Captain Sir Tom more earlier, and I, I just wanted to touch on him because, you know, having watched the episode of Life Stories that mm. you did with him and also actually with Vinnie Jones, you know, you there have been just some amazing stories that have come out of it. And, and I spoke to you again after the Vinnie Jones one as well, because you were so empathetic and dealt with that in such a sympathetic way as well. You've had a, a couple of amazing guests. Who, who are the ones for you that still stand out that you've got on your must-have list that you would love to get on Life Stories that you haven't had so oh, far? Oh, there's loads. I mean, I've been trying to get Sir Michael Caine for 12 years and he keeps teasing me. He wrote back to me once, he emailed me saying, Piers, for all the reasons I love watching your show, I'll never do it. And then I did Roger Moore, who was a friend of his, which was a great show. And I bumped into Michael at a restaurant in Chelsea. And he said, you're getting close to Piers, but no cigar. And then I bumped into him again at the River Cafe in, in Fulham late August. And I said to him, come on, now's the time, surely. He went, well, who else are you doing? I went, Captain Sir Tom Moore. He went, really? I went, yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, why don't you watch that? And if you like it, then do my show. He went, I'll definitely do that. And I may do it. I may do it. And he watched it. Uh, his, his PA wrote to me and said, Sir Michael, watch the show. He loved the show. Mm -hmm. And he Good. he would like to do what Tom Moore did and do it when he's 100. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's top of my list. So I'll, I'll crack him. I'll crack him. You just keep working I'll on keep it. I'll keep working on it, yeah. What's next for you? Because, you know, you've done so Not that I'm trying to get rid of you on Good Morning Britain, obviously. You're sensing but, opportunities, um, Where do you see yourself... <laughs> Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? I know we've joked about Piers Morgan for Prime Minister, but do you Why have kind of ambitions to what, what to do to get into politics? Because can you, well, you probably yes, can imagine running the country. Of course I could. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford the baker. No, I don't think I get into politics, but I, uh, I, there's lots of things. I mean, movies, you know, I've been in, I've done eight cameos now in movies that have grossed 1.6 billion at the box office. Uh, I'm about as bankable as Will Smith. So you want to be a film star? Well, look, they did a new James Bond. There's been a Pierce Brosnan. It's not a big stretch <laughs> to go slightly older, a bit more silver foxy. Piers Morgan. The name is Morgan. <laughs> Piers Morgan. Okay. Well, I mean, you never know. Ambition knows no bounds, Charlotte, as the hippopotamus <laughs> yes, said to the Yes, I will listen seagulls. to your mother. I know. Who is right? Yeah. You ask my mother if, if I should be James film... Bond, and she'll say yes. <laughs> she would think that you can do anything. I'm That's sure. That's exactly why I'm the way I am. If there was a film made about your life, who would you like to play you? Um, I've always said the two Collins, Firth by day, Farrell by night. 
<laughs> so you'd have two actors playing you because one, one wouldn't quite be frankly, enough. wouldn't one be wouldn't enough. Be Is enough. that what you're no. saying? I mean, it would have to be two. Although I don't know whether, yeah, I think they'd still be good for the two the two components of my life. Yeah, maybe Tom Hardy for the evening the evening size. Well, listen. I'll wrap it up there because I know that you'll be saying to me, um, that's it, your time is yeah. up very shortly anyway. But a huge thank you for taking part. I'd also like to thank your sister and your brother as well for their help in the making of this podcast. Uh, your brother did also say to me, by the way, uh, don't let him talk all over you. And if all else fails, resort to physical violence because he says that's always worked for yeah, him. It's a bit hard I at the moment, isn't it? Arm social distancing, every Christmas so. and he's an army colonel. So <laughs> stick that in your pipe, colonel. Come back to me when... Your real guns, <laughs> anything like as strong as mine. But um, a big thank you for your time. You know I do what? Appreciate it was it. almost a pleasure, Charlotte. Oh, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great to speak with Piers. I didn't have to resort to physical violence in the end. And fortunately, it seems no nuclear war has been launched as a consequence, which is a relief. Piers mentioned how he likes to chill out in Beverly Hills listening to Chopin. Well, it may not be quite the same without the sunshine, but this week I have been enjoying taking time out to listen to Chopin, and in particular his Nocturne in C-sharp minor. I love this piece because it's so hauntingly beautiful and intricate with its cascades of notes. It is well worth a listen. And if you want to hear the music mentioned today, it is all available at the Companion playlist. Take a look at the link in the show notes. If you like what you've heard in this episode, then please do share with a friend and please leave a review. It would be great if you could, as it does help the show to be discovered by new listeners. So a big thank you in advance. This podcast is produced by Renee Richardson with B. Duncan and exec produced by Chloe Murphy at Sony Classical. I'll be back next week with a new guest to discuss their last past and blast. See you then. Bye for now. <laughs>